There are two tragedies in life, George Bernard Shaw said. One is to lose your heart's desire. The other is to gain it. These are the true adventures of Guy Dunlev. Episode 11, Paved Over Paradise. In 1970, at age 35, Gidon was carrying a heavy load of unexamined Holocaust trauma. He was so deeply distressed by the sudden disappearance of his children that he wasn't able to stop himself from his own worst, most triggered impulses to make this right immediately, no matter what. I asked Gidon whether he went to the U.S. Embassy to report what had happened. He hadn't. I couldn't imagine that the U.S. Embassy would have done much anyway— Naomi was a U.S. citizen, but a family dispute would surely be pretty low on the embassy's priority list. The trouble with international child abduction is that it's extremely difficult to pursue in a meaningful or timely way. For fathers, this task can be even more difficult. Once children are taken over a border, that's the tricky part, they can simply vanish, leaving the other parent more or less helpless. Authorities, in other words, were not particularly equipped then or now for the terrible situation Guidon had found himself in. Possession, John Lennon once said, isn't nine-tenths of the law, it's nine-tenths of the problem. Five days after the kids had disappeared, Guidon landed in New York and went to the home of his second cousin, John. Using an address book that Naomi had inadvertently left in the home she and Gidon formerly shared on Kibbutz Zikin, John called Naomi's parents and said he'd heard from Gidon in Israel. He wanted to know where his children were. What John didn't say was that Gidon was beside him as they made the call and that he was listening in. It became clear from the call that Naomi was either already at or headed toward her parents' home in Northern California, even as they spoke. Gidon went to the Israeli consulate in New York and was told that if he could find his children, they would issue all the relevant documents and help him get home again. So, he caught a flight to California and met with friends who'd worked as volunteers on Kibbutz Zikim. With a place to stay and plenty of support and encouragement, Gidon was introduced to a family law attorney. Judging from the spacious office with a panoramic view of San Francisco, this lawyer was no slouch. The attorney reiterated the same advice. Get the children fast. But first, the attorney counseled, Gidon would need to hire a private detective. In my mind's eye, I pictured some kind of Quentin Tarantino movie character, a guy with sideburns and a polyester suit. The agency was located in a small three-story building on the ground floor with a sign advertising a private detective agency. I entered and a young woman received me on the main floor of the building with hundreds of files everywhere. People came in and went out nonstop. After a while, a tall, stocky man invited me into his office, which was actually not a real office, but a furnished basement lined on all sides with electronics. 
I told him what happened. He asked me a very important question. Was I sure that I knew where the kids were? I needed to be sure before we could put a plan into action. The fee for this plan was $1,500. The plan was this. Go to where Naomi and the kids were with two cars, one for each child. Get the kids, drive to the nearest private airport where Gidon would be waiting, get in a private plane, and fly over the state line into Nevada. From there, Gidon told me, I was on my own. $1,500 didn't strike me as a ton of money for such an elaborate plan, although that's almost $10,000 today. But that wasn't the part that got to me. What does get the kids mean, Gidon? Who was going to get them, and how? Well, I don't know. The detectives, I guess, said Gidon. Just knock on the front door and take the children? I was absolutely floored. I loved Gidon to pieces, and I knew this topic was very hard for him to discuss, but I was definitely judging. What would I have done? Not this, I thought. There was a line. But how could I possibly judge Gidon or Naomi? all these many years later. All Gidon knew was that he needed $1,500 fast. Until then, he had not told his mother, Doris, who was living in Toronto, Canada, what was going on. How was he going to tell his mother that he was in America because his children, her grandchildren, had been kidnapped and that, moreover, he needed a lot of money to get them back? With a heavy heart, though, Gidon made the call. Doris agreed to send the funds as soon as possible, but it was a bank holiday in the United States and in Canada, so Guidon had to wait for several days. He found himself in an unusual situation. My dear friends realized how stressed out I was, and it being a holiday suggested that the next day we all take ourselves off to the beach for some relaxation. We parked the car at the top of a ravine, And climbed down steep steps that led to a totally hidden but lovely beach where young and old skinny and fat people were sitting swimming playing and just talking all without a stitch of cloth on them all very calm very friendly and very free for me this being the first time ever I It was a bit of an unusual situation, but I quickly realized that I would be the odd man out if I kept my clothing on. I'm used to the warm Mediterranean, so the Pacific was very cold. I ran in for a minute up to my knees and quickly decided this water was not for me. So my friends and I talked and enjoyed the sun warming our bodies. Half an hour later, someone approached from a distance and called, Gidon, is that you? What are you doing here in California? What are you doing on this beach? And it turns out it was none other than Dave, another volunteer friend from Zikim. What a coincidence to meet him here. It was totally unbelievable. I told him what was going on. And then came a surprise. Gidon, do you have transportation? Gidon's nude bathing kibbutz volunteer friend, it turned out, was headed to Spain for a month, and he offered Gidon his car while he was gone. I started feeling that maybe after all, 
I did really have a chance in getting my kids back. Things were going my way. I started to cheer up and feel better. Another volunteer from Zikim, who Gidon had gotten a hold of when he arrived in California, agreed to drive up to the small rural town where Naomi was staying with her parents, the kids, and her boyfriend to stake things out. Gidon and Stuart drove up the Sacramento Valley for several hours, past fields of rice and corn, and they came up with a plan. Stuart would knock on Naomi's door, unannounced, while Gidon waited about 50 yards away, hidden by trees and bushes. Stuart would pretend to have stopped by casually and then, seeing the kids, ask what was up and what their plans were. The plan worked. After a friendly two-hour visit, Stuart bid his goodbyes and returned to Gidon. The couple seemed relaxed, said Stuart. They said that Gidon was back in Israel and that all was just fine. They were planning to head back to Southern California after a brief stop in the Bay Area. Gidon returned to San Francisco excited. He had the information he needed. But there was still a snag. The money had not yet arrived. The detective made a proposition. The private detective asked me, Mr. Gideon, are you prepared to do something risky? And I foolishly and confidently answered, I'll try. I'm involved with a prison facility here in our area and in touch with the warden. They are suffering from a drug problem and need to find out how the drugs are entering the facility. They would place you in jail, and you would be a stoolie. If you agree, you would be paid $2,000, and we could go ahead with our plan. Since I was quite desperate and very foolish, I agreed to do this job. But luckily, beforehand, I had to be interviewed by two very experienced jailers to see if I fit the bill. After an hour's interrogation by these two gentlemen, it very quickly became clear that I did not, in any way, meet the requirements. I was neither hardened nor experienced with drugs. I couldn't even tell the difference between hashish, grass, and marijuana. I knew nothing about hard drugs. I was much too naive and trusting, and the chance that I would come out alive was close to zero. I also lacked the criminal mind, so they told me. I simply was not the stoolie type. On the one hand, I was relieved, and on the other hand, of course, I was desperate to find out how and when I could get the money I needed. Having thankfully been rejected as a would-be jailhouse snitch, Gidon had to keep waiting for the money to arrive. But... Time was marching on. It had been days. And he knew that with every passing day, the likelihood that Naomi and the kids would head out rose. Plus, he'd come down with a bad case of poison oak from hiding in the bushes on his last escapade with Stuart. Finally, the money arrived. But now a new plan had to be made. The family was in the Bay Area. Gidon and an employee of the private detective drove to the address to stake out the situation. Dave stressed to Gidon that he should stay in the car at all costs. They were just doing a quick confirmation that the family was there, and they couldn't afford to blow their cover. You can guess what happened next. After a while, I got out. And against Dave's protests, 
climbed a small fence surrounding their property, this time paying attention for poison oak or poison ivy, and slowly made my way closer to the house while hidden in the bushes. I was crouching behind a huge tree when all of a sudden the back door of the house opened and out came Maya, Yanai, Nomi, Nomi's sister Laura, and an elderly woman whom I supposed was her boyfriend's mother. I was about a hundred yards from them and could both hear and see them. Though I stayed hidden, I was terribly excited and not very much in control of my feelings. Though I stayed hidden, my brain and my heart just wanted to jump up and hug and kiss the kids. Seeing them and hearing them was just too much for me. I did stay out of sight, relying on all my self-control not to do what seemed to me to be so natural. At this point, it occurred to me that what I ought to do is retreat and get back to the car. Mission accomplished. But just at that very moment, a large German shepherd dog came out of the house and without hesitation immediately started barking and coming towards me. I hightailed as fast as I could and as I jumped over the fence and heard them yell, Call the police! Call the police! He's trespassing! I hid a couple of hundred yards away behind another hedge. As I crouched and hid myself, two police cars came up the road, sirens blaring, and entered the driveway. I, of course, stayed hidden, shaking and totally distressed. About an hour later, when the police cars had finally left, I carefully made my way to the car and joined Dave, who had of course heard and seen what was happening and quickly surmised that things did not go well. He was actually glad to see me because he feared the police had caught me and I would be jailed. Knowing that the trespassing laws in California are very strictly enforced, he of course was also angry with me that I exposed myself and that we lost the one big advantage of surprise we had till this moment. It quickly became clear that, having lost the element of surprise, Mr. Greenberg was no longer prepared to continue working with me, and that I would be on my own. What a wild goose chase! Now Guidon had blown it. He was indeed on his own from that point on. But he had a car, and he had an address book of names and phone numbers. He hit the road for Southern California and drove for hours along the seaside, which calmed him. He had the money his mother sent, and he knew where the family was headed. He was in too deep now. He had nothing left to lose. He looked up a cousin on his father's side and showed up on her doorstep, hoping to find a haven in the seaside community where he hoped Naomi and the children were, if all accounts had been correct. But the cousin had changed dramatically since Gidon had known her. I couldn't even sleep on the couch because, as she explained, this was the Lord's resting place. So I slept on a mattress on the floor and realized very quickly that this was not going to be my home while I was there. I had my breakfast of tea and biscuits and said goodbye and decided that I would look someone else up. That someone else was a lovely woman named Lee. Lee had been married to Naomi's boyfriend before she had been abruptly dumped in favor of Naomi. She was more than happy to help Gidon. 
What's more, she'd been living in the community for a few years and knew of her ex's routines, friends, and hangouts. She and Guidon, with their respective hurts, hit it off and became very close. Lee worked as a social worker in Santa Barbara. She had a car and in the morning would drive to work, leaving me the key to the house and giving me directions to where I could possibly try to track them down. After a few days, I started taking Lee to work and picking her up afterwards, and then, together, we would cruise the streets of the town. Lee and Gidon decided to divide the city into areas and cruise around, searching a different neighborhood every day. Days went by with nothing. At the end of another day, just as the two were about to throw in a towel, Lee mentioned that she knew of a big supermarket that her ex frequented. The two drove to the parking lot and waited. Gidon went inside. Nothing. Returning disillusioned and pretty much down, I got back in the car with Lee. As she was about to slowly back out of the parking space, I naturally looked around also and let out a shout. Lee, there they are! Look! Lee stepped on the brakes, pulled back into our parking spot, and looking around, both of us saw 20 yards away behind us a station wagon pulling up and Nomi's boyfriend with his bright red bandana getting out, walking past us, and entering the supermarket about 150 feet away. Lee and I ducked down. I was of course beside myself with excitement and reacting on nerves only. Once he entered the supermarket, I got out of the car, my heart pounding hard, and walked the 20 steps over to their station wagon. I slowly opened the back door and saw Maya and Yanai sitting next to Nomi's younger sister, Laura. Nomi was sitting in the front seat. She turned white as a ghost when she saw me. I spoke to the kids in Hebrew and told them, Shalom, I've missed you and haven't seen you in a long time. Then I took Yanai gently into my arms and walked with him to Lee's car. Nomi sent her sister Laura running to the supermarket to get her boyfriend. Maya also got out of the car and I called to her, but Nomi shouted at her, get back into the car. I was in a terrible turmoil. What should I do? After a minute or so of hesitation, I told Lee, let's get out of here. And this while holding on to Yanai and leaving my dear Maya behind. Mothers, children, separation, helplessness, anger, and trauma must have played a cacophonous orchestra in Gidon's mind in that awful moment. Guidon did not consciously choose between his two children. Pressure and desperation made him just plain panic as he ran out of time. I asked myself then, and I ask myself today, why I didn't also take Maya. Could I have? Yes, I could and I should have. Perhaps had Lee offered to hold on to Yanai while I went to get Maya, I may have done so. But she did not become active in this drama and surely had some ambiguous feeling at this point. One other aspect of this momentous event was that had I decided to physically take Maya into our car, 
it probably would have necessitated a physical confrontation with Nomi. And that is part of the reason I didn't do it. I told myself after all was said and done, Nomi and I did have an arrangement that each of us would raise one of the children. And though she drastically broke this understanding, I still felt that perhaps something can be salvaged. Both of us would in all likeliness suffer, but we would also be able to raise at least one of the children. None of this called into question at all how Maya felt, and over the years it turned out that it had deep and damaging ramifications. Maya must have thought, how was it that dad took only an eye and not me? Why not? Didn't dad love me? Didn't he care? Only many years later did I realize how deeply this lack of sensitivity on my part towards Maya really affected her. And I'm sorry to this very day, I can hardly forgive myself. Perhaps belatedly, it dawned on me why Gidon was so insistent and persistent about me writing this book. He had a lot to get off his chest, much of which was unexamined and disconnected. He needed a companion along the way, a sounding board, someone to listen, to understand, and to hug him when the pain was just too much. In his book, a primer for forgetting, Lewis Hyde writes, The French psychologist Pierre Genet once suggested that we think of memory not as a thing fixed in the mind, but as an action, the action of telling a story. And when it is successful, that action leads to the stage of liquidation. Forgetting appears when the story has been so fully told as to wear itself out. Then time begins to flow again. Then the future can unfold. So maybe this was it. The last telling of a terrible event as Gidon remembered it that echoed with hurt and anger for decades. Gidon and Lee took Yanai to the home of some friends and tried to calm down and plan their next steps. The following day, Gidon visited with a family lawyer who had just won another complicated custody case. The attorney told Gidon in no uncertain terms that it would take thousands of dollars and up to three years for him to legally sort out this situation, and that even then, there would be no guarantees. Gidon would have to stay in California during this time. Therefore, the lawyer said, the best option was to simply return to Israel with Yanai and put it behind him. Arriving back in Israel with Yanai, it was exciting to see the Tel Aviv seashore. The familiar landscape was heartwarming, although I was very sad that Maya was not sitting next to me as Yanai was. We were met at the airport by my neighbors and friends from the kibbutz, and of course their first question was, where is Maya? I told them briefly and painfully what had happened, and as usual, couldn't control my emotions. We got back to Zikim, and Yanai went back to his little group of children as if he had never left, and I returned to my work in the cow barn. Just being back home, a feeling of well-being and security enveloped me. With many of the kibbutz members not only asking me about what had taken place in America, but expressing a lot of empathy and support. 
I concentrated on being a good father to Yanai and felt secure and a sense of belonging on the kibbutz. One day I was holding Yanai in my arms, walking down a sandy path on the kibbutz. I remember that there were jacaranda trees everywhere with their brilliant orange flowers. Suddenly, I had such a strong feeling of commitment and devotion that I stopped on my way and I vowed that I would protect and take care of Yanai with all of my strength for the rest of his life. I remember it to this day, that intense feeling, but I was also worried. What did the future have in store for me and Yanai? Would I see Maya again? And if so, when? Where? And how? Must I stay on kibbutz, particularly Zikim? Would I find a new partner? Would I somehow rebuild my life? The Israel that Gidon returned to after a six-week absence was one in which tensions and conflict with its neighbors were still active. The Six-Day War had been over for about three years, but the Arab League summit in 1967, which was attended by the heads of state of Algeria, Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, Kuwait, Lebanon, Sudan, and Syria, had issued the Khartoum Resolution, which famously included the three no's policy. No peace, no recognition, no negotiations with Israel. Thus, the War of Attrition came about, which was a series of attacks, counterattacks, mortars and skirmishes, and cross-border hostilities, sometimes sustained, sometimes sporadic, that lasted for almost three years from 1967 to 1970, primarily in the Sinai. Attrition warfare is a strategy that is suggested by its name. It consists of simply wearing down the other side until their numbers and materiel are so depleted they eventually give up. As a single father, I was excused most of the time from reserve duty. But one time I did have to go and serve on the Golan, and that was very, very hard on me. I was more worried about Yanai's safety in Zikim than my own well-being on the Syrian border. With Katyusha rockets coming down on us at any time, night or day, we survived unscathed, though there was damage at some of the border kibbutzim. Of course, we retaliated relentlessly, but we never knew when and where the next salvo of rockets or heavy artillery or mortar fire would come down on us. It was very unnerving, to say the least. It was usually massive but short, so that our forces, especially the Air Force, couldn't spot them. Gidon stayed in touch with Maya by sending letters containing drawings from Yanai addressed to Naomi's parents in California. Eventually, Naomi replied by way of unaddressed envelopes. But these were few and far between, and the trust between the two had been broken beyond repair. Gidon hired a lawyer, applied for full custody of Maya and Yanai in Israel, and won before an Israeli Supreme Court judge. Although she contested it, unless Naomi came to Israel with Maya, this legal custody decision was utterly unenforceable. It was an empty victory. It would be four years before Gidon saw Maya again and Naomi saw Yanai. Another four years after that, Naomi and Gidon came to a kind of detente. But it was and remained for decades a cold war of wills. Slowly, that terrible chapter became something new, 
something that looked a little like healing. Have we gotten to the part where I met Susan yet? Good timing, Gidon. Simon and Garfunkel has a special place in Gidon's heart for a reason. Susan Cashman, the expressive, intelligent friend he'd made on Kibbutz Hazorea in 1961, and with whom there had been a simmering, low-level flirtation, had sent Gidon a Simon and Garfunkel album, an album of Brahms, a coffee percolator, and a Tonka toy truck for Yanai, all brought to him by her parents, Monty and Margie, who had moved to Israel in 1970. Gidon and Susan had stayed in touch through correspondence and holiday cards for many years by that time, and Gidon was happy when Susan moved to Israel to join her parents. Living on Kibbutz Zikim with Yanai was a nurturing and caring place for Gidon, but he was again quite lonely. At the suggestion of a kibbutz psychiatrist, Gidon started attending group therapy sessions each week in Tel Aviv to try to work through the terrible events he had just experienced. Before his therapy sessions began, Gidon beelined to a payphone to call Susan, who was by then living in the heart of Tel Aviv. He had to use the famed Asimon tokens that Israel used for payphones up to 1987, which are now collector's items. Susan was everything that Gidon was not expressive, educated, and creative. She was exactly what Gidon needed and missed in his life. But she was in a different relationship. One day, when Gidon called, Susan sounded stressed. She wanted him to come over. Gidon said he was on his way to group therapy, but Susan was insistent. We'll have therapy together today, she said. Mystified, Gidon went to a small apartment on Allenby Street in Tel Aviv. I arrived to find a distraught young woman, tears running down her cheeks in utter dismay. We hugged and she thanked me for coming. How could I not? I knew that Susan had been in a serious relationship with a musician named Victor, and that she loved him and he loved her, but he was not prepared to marry her. Susan was pregnant. She knew for sure she wanted to have this child, but also that her relationship with the biological father was over. She definitely knew that single parenthood was not for her. Kidon was also a single parent, and the two had been warm friends for many years. Susan had a feeling that if she and Gidon cast their fortunes together, as crazy as it sounded, it might just work. She asked Gidon to marry her. So many things to think about, so many questions to answer. And yet, a glimmer of hope possessed me. Is this my second chance to rebuild my life? Will it be good for Yanai to have a new mom? Will I be able to be a true and loving father to this child? Will Susan be able to live with me on Zikim? What will she work at on the kibbutz? Can she learn proper Hebrew? Will there be enough passion in our relationship? We come from such different backgrounds. How will we bridge those gaps? How will we manage? The questions, doubts, and fears were all real. And yet, I tended, as I do even today, to be hopeful, believing in the future, adventurous, 
and ready to jump into the sea and start swimming. The truth is, I was also a bit taken aback that Susan would choose me out of a number of other male friends she had to become her partner, lover, friend, not to mention father to this unborn baby. This meant a great deal to me and about how she felt about me, trusted me, and was prepared to throw herself into this unknown territory. She too was being adventurous. She knew about my disastrous marriage to Nomi, and yet she was ready to go for it, as the saying goes. I wondered how hard will it be for her to be a loving and a giving mom to Yanai, having had no such experience before with any children, and especially not in this kind of a situation. Would she be able to cope? Would she be able to love both Yanai and I? And yes, I would be there and I would try to help and be patient, understanding and loving, but would it be enough? 48 hours later, Guidon said yes. It was, as he said, a leap into the clear blue sea. And what a leap. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe and follow for more. And don't forget to leave a review. If you'd like to read The True Adventures, it is available everywhere you buy books online. To learn more about Guidon Lev, go to www.thetrueadventures.com. And be sure to follow Guidon on social media. Thanks to our sound designers, Victoria Sampson and Andrew Mott. Music composed by Nigel Krum and Adi Goldstein. Toda Rapa Eliram for being the voice of young Guidon. And special thanks to Lewis Hyde, author of A Primer for Forgetting.